JB Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 53 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about digitized home insurance through independent agents with Ty Harris from Openly. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. week gone by halfway through march first quarter's almost over what the heck 2020 blew by 2021's even faster and this is nutty crazy deal rob galbraith how you doing bud i i'm doing great and it's great to uh have you back this week james it was a <laughs> tough assignment going solo last week but managed to pull yeah. it off well yeah thank you for handling them sorry i had had some things come up and i appreciate you uh, you you as always being an amazing co-host on this show but it is good to be back here and the great state of Texas at our headquarters at JB Knowledge headquarters. You can see I'm at the office office, not the home office, not the coffee office, or they call it the coffee shop office. This is the the office office. We we you know getting some things fun back up. Of course, I, I'm I'm excited to 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 be driving to work every day and have a little commute to listen to my podcast again. That's how I was missing out on my commute podcast and audiobook time. So I'm excited to have that back with us today from one of the prettiest cities in the South, Charleston, South Carolina is Mr. Ty Harris from Openly. Ty, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, be with you today. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a good chat about modern tech for insurance and why agents are still relevant. We'll see. We're going to find out. We're going to talk about that with Ty. Before we get started, though, don't forget you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek Podcast by texting Geek Out. That's G-E-E-K, Geek Out. To 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. We email you every week with the show notes, the links, the articles, and just what's going on with the show. And you can uh, listen to who our, who our guests are. We've got a great one today, and we are excited again to have Ty Harris from Openly. That's openly.com, O-P-E-N-L-Y.com. Uh, he's the co-founder and CEO there. He Now, this is interesting because uh, I do two podcasts. I record both on Fridays. My previous guest this morning was a Duke grad as well so you you gotta you gotta love that and and he he went there at almost the exact same time as you you know he was there a few few years before you but the name is brian helm he uh, he went to, to duke university and then you went and and did some post-grad work over at, at mit or their wicked smart up in up in boston but the, let's talk about your you know kind of early days and and what led you to openly i don't want to talk about openly yet I want to talk about the foundation? Like, give me the give me the origin story of the superhero here. You were born and raised in Atlanta, I believe. So, just tell me when you know what, what was that like growing up in Atlanta, and what did you envision yourself doing, and what led you to do an econ at Duke and, and MIT? Well, I just woke up in a field one day, and these. No, I'm kidding. I yeah, I, as you said, I was born in Atlanta. You know, my my dad was an airline pilot, and you know, Atlanta is a huge hub for Delta Airlines. So that's kind of how we, we ended up there. I grew up, I was a pretty kind of nerdy person, I'd say in general. I was, I was pretty quantitatively oriented, you know, academic in all, in all those ways. Ended up going to Duke. And I, if you had asked me at that point, would I end up in insurance? You know, that was probably number 185 on the things that I could conceivably ever picture myself doing. You know, I, I 
I, I went from Duke to a place called the Brookings Institution. Well, first of all, you know, at the time, at least, it's probably unfair, but like a, a lot of the career paths from Duke were very professionally oriented. So you're going to go become, you know, an attorney or a doctor. There was not a lot of focus on uh, entrepreneurship in particular. There was some on finance, but certainly no one, not a lot of uh, time focus at the time on entrepreneurship or insurance. So I went from Duke to a think tank in DC called the Brookings Institution and did various quantitative research there, which ultimately led me to MIT grad school in economics. And that was a, a great experience. I was in a you know class of 25 people from all over the world studying economics. I specialized in market microstructure finance. So you know very, very quantitative kind of theoretical areas of finance. And at some point, you know, I I I, I loved the, the coursework, and I and I, I loved many things about what I was doing. I was teaching as while I was there, which was very enjoyable. But there came a point where I wanted to. I, I came to the realization that I didn't actually want the full academic career. That I wanted to go into something more businessy or more practically oriented. And at the time, I was a huge poker player, and I you know I was into finance and statistics. And so I was like, well, I could go to Las Vegas and work in a casino, or I could go to an insurance company, which is the other area where I saw lots of, you know, not people, a lot of difference, right? Not a lot of difference. Exactly. That's why I, I I lumped them together. And Vegas was a ways away. I guess Foxwoods wasn't that far away, but Liberty Mutual was just across the river from where I was living in fabulous Cambridge at that point. So I went to Liberty Mutual from grad school. I was a kind of started over in a way um, relative to an academic career. I was a beginning actuary. So I went in and I, you know, I was an analyst there, took all the actuarial tests over time, kind of cut my teeth, had some great mentors, cut my teeth building home and auto insurance products for Liberty. Was there for about 12 and a half years, had a great career. In the end of that career, I was, I was actually the chief product and underwriting officer globally for their personal lines of business. And I mean, again, I can't say enough about that, that, that nice corporate job with, with great people and, and doing great things. But I think a combination of a couple of things ultimately drove me to openly. And, and one was really inward looking and personal. And I, I realized that the, the times in my life that I had the most enjoyment and fulfillment were times when I was really building something from nothing. I mean, whether it was building something at Liberty or, you know, building up myself as a runner or a ballroom dancer or a poker, you know, wh whatever it was, it was building rather than defending. And that's what I wanted to spend my life doing. And, and the balance wasn't quite right in a big corporate job. And that so that was the inward part. The outward part was I, I being in a, at a big company doing insurance for a while, you see lots of opportunities where you know, just with some hunger and some, uh, you know, what I what I would think of as like first principles thinking. There's just a lot of opportunity, and and openly is going after a couple, one or two of those biggest opportunities that we saw. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll and we'll deep dive in openly in a minute. I, I just yeah. want to kind of jump into foundation. You know, now Liberty. Uh, first off, if you don't know who the Brookings Brookings Institute is, uh, do, do some do some reading. Pretty cool place that you were at. And a good healthy study of economics, I think, is good for everybody in the business world to understand how economies work and how supply and demand works. There seems to be a fundamental lack of understanding about anything about how supply and demand works. People complain about supply-demand curves all the time and just demonstrates a fundamental lack of – to me, economics is fascinating because it's a study of human behavior, right? Like mm -hmm. you're really studying human behavior. The people are heavily incentivized, and they behave how they're incentivized to behave. And uh, that's a fundamental tenet you have to understand. 
to, to study economics and to study like existence and you know that they respond to changes in price you know price flexibility and price elasticity right all these wonderful things that you study in economics so it's i think it's a, a wonderful foundational principle you obviously learned a lot at liberty i mean there's you know pretty pretty sweet place right i mean there's a lot of cool people there a lot of progressive thinking at liberty I mean, you got to be a big part of that for quite some time what were your like, top three takeaways from your time at Liberty? <laughs> well, one of them was the first day as a beginning actuary, I walked in the door and they handed me the spreadsheet with the rate indication. And I, as the theoretical, you know, academic economist assumed I was going to go in there. And I always wondered, like, how much do insurance companies actually take? Like, would, it, would, would consumers put up with, you know, what, like they get back 99% of the money and 1% goes to like manage the company or is it 90-10 or what? And lo and behold, I mean, this is nothing as Liberty to actually have a decent expense ratio. But as, as people in the industry would know, about only about 60% or, or less of the money ends up going back to consumers. And so with you know full-on 40-plus percent going to administrative expense, there's obviously some profit then on top of that. But what, so one of the huge things that struck me just my whole time in the industry was like, if this is a 401k, would you put up with 40% of the money you put into your 401k, like going to the expense load and the 60% going into your account. And you, you, in some ways you should think of insurance that way. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but it, it is an investment product with, you know, negatively correlated with your other things in your life, but you shouldn't put up with 40% of the money kind of going down a hole. And I think that's existentially the industry. I know why it is. And I've, I've seen it and I understand, but like that has to change over time. It's not tomorrow, but that, that will invariably be dragged down over time the industry has to if you want to call it commoditized that that will if, if you want to put that label on it that will happen so that was one of my takeaways um two was that and relatedly is that i think transparent choice is coming to the u.s market and, you, and some people would say oh it's already here you know there's a, but it's it's not here the way that it is in like you know uk or or spain motor insurance for example and i think carriers need to be even more rapidly preparing for a world where they are you know spreadsheeted and and, and price compared far more than than they are today the other thing i guess i would got some a great takeaway i would say coming from from liberty in particular was just the emphasis on talent and how to how to do that? How to build? You know, I had an organization of 800 people when I left. And coming from an, an academic economic background, you would never have guessed. You would have thought of a, you think of companies in some ways as point particles in economics. That's not really fair, but like it, it, you don't understand how much great people can make a difference relative to the same business plan with not great people when you're studying academically. And the the management skills and the and the talent, the importance of talent was probably the one of the most critical thing that I learned while at Liberty, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's certainly usually the, the harbinger of success or failure <laughs> at an yeah. organization. So that's a, that's a really, really, really important one. And it is an interesting analogy when you compare insurance to your investment products, because it, you're like, yeah, no, I, w I wouldn't accept that at all. You know, why, why do I accept this much, this much overhead over here, but not over here? What, what makes it different? And Largely because it's a black box to most people, right? I mean, they it's just this this hole you sit and put money into, and you hope to to you know have protection in case something bad happens, and you know that you have a you know some some pricey assets that you want to take care of, and so it's it's it can be really really challenging. But Rob, yeah, it's uh, funny, Ty. We actually have uh, a lot of I guess intersectionality, interestingly enough, in in our career, which I'll get to in a moment. But building on your point, I actually just gave a talk to the casually actuaries of 
New England, ironically enough, this morning, and just, you know, I make this point in my book, and I've made it pretty much in every talk that I've, I've given about the end of insurance as we know it, is when you look at the industry expense ratio, and this is all lines lumped together, so personal lines, commercial lines, right, short-tailed, long-tailed, et cetera, but on average, it's about 30%, and that number has not budged in the last 10 years. So if you think about premiums have gone up quite a bit over the last decade, and you think about all the investments that companies make in know, technology and, you know, experiences of the whole nine yards, right? And we are not getting any more efficient as an industry. Exactly to your point. And, you know, I always tell people to compare it to credit cards. You've got large card, right? Networks, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, you've got large banks issuing it. You've got lots of regulation, you've got lots of fraud. And yet, you know, they're able to do that at, at 3%, right, for the exchange fees. And so we're about 10x that. And I'm not saying that we'll ever get down to 3% expense ratios in the insurance industry, but uh, I think 10x over credit cards is a little too steep, right? Especially at a small scale, credit cards is a this is a substitute, right? You break your, your iPhone, like either I have insurance on it or I buy a new one out of pocket, and then I have some flexibility of paying off my credit card and and whatnot. So I love the way that you're you're thinking about that. And you know, I mentioned the intersectionality. So I too am an economics major at a basketball powerhouse, a slightly different Michigan State than than Duke, but and obviously big big rivals. And I'm very proud that my Spartans got their first win ever at Cameron Indoor. Granted, no fans, no Cameron crazies this year, but no asterisk from my uh, standpoint on on that victory. And I actually was a research assistant at the Federal Reserve Board, right nearby in the the late 90s. So who knows? We might have visited. The same bar or two at some point uh, along the time. Uh, and I actually had a, yeah. a friend of mine that uh, was also an economics major and, and went on to a uh, grad program at MIT during the same time. So we'll have to check with the off air and, and see if we happen to to have that common person. But you know, I spent 20 years at USA and personal lines. So definitely a lot of commonalities there. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I As I recall, one of my more glorious duties when I was at Liver Brookings was to go fetch some report that came out from the Fed like every Friday morning. So at the time, you'd have to like physically run over there and get this paper and run it back to my boss. And it was a time sensitive thing. It's probably a little more electronic now, but uh, yeah, I, I, I might I might have been near. Yeah, yeah. I was a little behind the time that the, the technology was slightly uh, too advanced, unfortunately, but they uh, used to have a plotter at the Federal Reserve that was a computer program that would uh, spit out to literally a pen, like in a piece of paper, and it would program the pen to draw the chart. And they said that they would go out and throw a frisbee on the Washington mall for an hour while the plotter was drawing the line on the pen. So, so I, I definitely want to come to Openly. And one of the things that really struck me in, in reviewing your website and, and what I know about Openly is this promise of beautifully simple home insurance. So can you describe for our audience, you know, what does that mean? And, and how are you different from a traditional carrier like a Liberty Mutual USA and others? Yeah. So let me just to set the stage, you know, we are effectively a kind of an upmarket homeowners insurance carrier, right? And as, as we've noted, selling through uh, independent agents exclusively. And But to give you an example of what we mean by beautifully simple, I think one particular kind of microcosm might, might bring it home. So if you think about how everyone buys and sells home insurance today, one of the biggest things you have to decide as a consumer or as an agent when you're buying is what coverage A, they call it, limit on your home insurance do you want, i.e. if your house burns down, how much would that cost? And when you when you buy your policy, that is the number one rating variable. It's almost one for one with your the coverage A limit that you select as a homeowner. Uh, you know, the carrier might have some model that underlies it and gives you guidance. The agent might have an opinion. Your lender might have an opinion. It's very common for your lend for actually a customer and the agent and the lender to be in this three-way triangular argument about that value because the lender says, hey, this is a 
$800,000 house because that's the you know market price. But then you say, well, actually, it's only $500,000 to replace. And then the customer, and it's just huge. And then you inspect it and 30 days later, you get a different answer. Your price changes. So it creates this big friction at point of sale. Then it creates friction at time of claim, potentially, right? So it's uncommon. But if a house does fully burn down or, or get destroyed, the customer can be out of luck if they didn't have enough coverage. So it's this perennial risk that's sort of on the agent, right? And also very much on the customer if if they they guessed wrong when they bought that coverage. And then the third, the triad of the problem is that it actually leads to less accurate rating because think about it, you've got this massive variable in your rating model, your pricing model that is ultimately subjective. You know, I've looked at a bunch of real quotes and, and data and very common for a, you know, a $400,000 house to get marked up or down by $200,000, even $400,000 because of someone's opinion in the process. You really didn't know what they were you know, getting at. So what we do to, that solves all three of those problems is we use, again, kind of pulling on the thread first principles thinking to say, why don't we just get rid of coverage A? Who needs it? So what we did was we got rid of the very concept of having a coverage A limit. So when you buy an openly policy uniquely, I think among carriers, you don't select a coverage A limit. Every house we write is guaranteed to $5 million. So you've already solved that customer possible gotcha, which is a big theme with openly. So you've simplified the policy in that sense. There's not this gotcha waiting for you. You've simplified the purchase experience and sped it up because there's not this back and forth argument and dissatisfier. And you've made it the pricing more accurate because you're pricing it on the underlying attributes of the house that actually create risks, the square footage, the bathrooms, the roof, et cetera, as opposed to this one single number, which really doesn't capture the risk appropriately anyway. And so that to me is the quintessential. We've tried to do that, that same way of thinking a hundred different times and make better algorithms underlie a better customer experience and fewer gotchas for the customer. So it's faster and it's better coverage and it's actually a more accurate price at the end of the day. Yeah. I, the coverage A thing is really fascinating to me, uh, Ty. And, and you know, listeners know that James always likes to, to geek out on the technical side, but I'm going to geek out on the insurance side for a minute because that is a major problem. And you know, when I was at USA, we, particularly the California wildfires, I think really kind of hit it home where you've got these homes and they haven't been properly kept up to date either. And so the way they were being priced and the way they were being settled, and I would say that USA is actually you know, pretty good in terms of their catastrophic claims relative, relative to, to other carriers. But yet you had this phenomenon where, hey, your home's burned down, you only have this much coverage. So you had a four bedroom home, but we only can afford to, to build you back to a two bedroom home. So, you know, or, you know, do you want the bedrooms gone or you don't want a kitchen or, you know, how do you want to rebuild? And it's just this really painful process on the, the back on the claim side. And I remember advocating for a time, like for all the reasons you said, hey, why don't we just get rid of that? And everyone said, yeah, that's a good idea. And then nobody did anything about it. So that's really great to hear what you guys are, are doing it openly. And I think that's a perfect example of does it, uh, does, that needs to be improved. But does it elim does it really eliminate the argument over what the house is worth? It eliminates it from the purchase decision, which is ninety nine point nine percent of the time that you would ever have that argument. So a hundred percent of customers today, when they purchase the insurance, need to have this discussion. Sometimes it's an argument, sometimes it's not. You know, zero point oh one percent of customers actually have their house burned down. And and to be to be truthful, you're going to have that discussion no matter what, because even a traditional policy covers the replacement cost of the home up to some limit. So the carrier is going to potentially, there's going to be discussion about what the real replacement cost of your home is anyway. And in our case, all we say is we're going to have that discussion just like any other carrier would about the replacement cost of your home, but we are not going to artificially limit it. If it turns out the replacement cost of your home is higher 
than you might have thought or you might have guessed had you picked a covey. You are covered with openly up to $5 million as a replacement cost. Mm. It's a, certainly a different way of underwriting this, right? I mean, that's the whole point. It is. I mean, but think of like, I mean, there, this is not a perfect analogy for a lot of reasons, but think of like auto insurance. Imagine that when you're insuring your car, you got into like a month long discussion about the replacement cost of your your car. Now that's, it's not perfect again, because cars are more homogenous than homes. But I'll tell you like auto insurance pricing, the center of auto insurance pricing is not the replacement cost of the car, right? It's a bunch of other things that determine the risk of that. Yeah, the stuff driver. the car is going to hit. Right. And we're doing the same thing with home insurance. We're saying that the centerpiece of this whole edifice can't be the replacement cost for the 0.01% of the time that it's going to get fully destroyed. It should be the all the attributes that contribute to the risk appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about the other thing that common insure techs are doing, and that is leveraging a lot of public databases to streamline the application process. Talk to me about how you're leveraging public data to keep your application forms short, simple, easy to use, and how that's factoring into your customer experience. Yeah. So when an agent, again, we distribute exclusively through independent agents, and I can, I'm happy to talk more about the thesis there and what I mean by that. I mean, oh, we're going to. <laughs> but <laughs> sure. But just to, to answer your question, agent has a customer on the phone. And they ask the customer for their name, date of birth, and the address to be insured. With those three pieces of information, we're able to return a bindable quote on up to a $3 million home in about eight seconds. And that it, the re, way we're able to do that is a combination, as you alluded to, of, of sourcing a lot of information. Some of it is public, some of it we pay for, some of it we have cached. It's a it's a huge, messy data cleaning and triaging problem that is, is some of the IP that we've built to capture all the data about the person, their claims history, their you know credit record, their auto driving record, et cetera, et cetera, the house, everything about the house, aerial imagery, records-based imagery about the house, and then the location down to you know 80 meters in terms of, or even closer in, in some cases, in terms of the exact attributes of that location and everything we can tie to it. Then we put all that data through our proprietary models. So we have our own pricing model, our own underwriting model, our own uh, model that determines agent commissions, our own inspection model. All of these are driven from those hundreds of pieces of information put through our ML built algorithms and that spits out those decisions. So the agent knows in you know literally eight seconds, is this eligible? If so, what's the price? If so, is it is there going to be an inspection needed down the road, which is a, a small percentage of policies? And then if I do sell this, what would be my commission based on the lifetime value of the policy? And so that's the experience. And then if they want to sell it, there's a, a beautiful e-commerce style checkout for the agent where you know they use simple intuitive sliders to customize coverage to add you know additional parties or LLCs or, or whatnot to the policy to pay with a credit card or, or buy a mortgage bill, however they need to, and to check out. And it immediately generates all the documents, PDFs them, sends them off to the customer and the agent, and it is a policy in the record. You can you can actually do it in like two minutes. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that an agent should consult with the customer and make sure the coverage is appropriate, but it is very, very fast when you would like it to be. Yeah. And that that's certainly one of the hallmarks of modern insure tech is completely streamlining underwriting and claims as a claims nerd. Tell me how you're leveraging people process and technology to streamline the claims process. Yeah. So the way we handle a small in-house team that assists with much of the in-house handling of the claims or the, the inside handling of the claims in a sort of a concierge fashion. And then we work with a third-party administrator who owns the file right now and who uh, does the outside adjusting and whatnot. And we do 
leverage technologies to, you know, A, we attempt to adjust claims without actually sending someone out to the house to the extent we can. Some of that is like pure straight through processing with, you know, just a machine touching it. Most of it, a human is touching in some way, but we try and keep that as an inside human. So someone is, you know, either looking at, you know, publicly available data of the house, about the house, or we're sending a drone out to, you know, take a, a closer look at the house and the damage that's been out there. Or, you know, we use an app that allows the customer, either at time of underwriting or at claim, to go and take pictures around the house and, and, and give us a sense for the damage. And that that is a part of the business that is very much evolving right now. You know, the, the first value proposition of Openly Out of the Gates, you got to focus on something, was about making the quote and purchase experience as fast and accurate as possible. And I think now there, there's tons of room to run, continue on, on the claim side. Awesome. Rob? Yeah, Ty, just kind of, I guess, building off of James' question, you know, your website mentions using cutting edge data and technology to provide customizable competitive prices, customized products, tailored claims experiences. So maybe you can talk a little bit more like, you know, you've touched a bit on the data piece, but, you know, there are some other data elements that you want to talk about and then any particular tech that you want to highlight that you guys are leveraging. Yeah, I'd just say, first of all, the one, one important thing to to talk about is the fact that our, our tech stack is fully bespoke, but for, you know, we, we didn't build our own payment processor. We didn't build our own claim software. But aside from those two pieces, the entire, you know, quoting policy administration, you know, generating of bills, even the financial accounting is bespoke. And the reason for that is that those pieces really need to tie together. The way our, our rating engine works, it actually divides every policy into like 65 little tiny components from, you know, hurricane damage to the roof to, uh, you know, fire damage to the the other structures, things like that. And it accounts for all of those. It commissions all of those. It can even reinsure all of those independently. And so to build that hyper granular system, both, you know, for sort of all purposes did take a fully bespoke stack that we built. And the 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 way we think about it is, you know, a lot of the IP that we have right now is in this upfront process of triaging all this this data. We talked about all the messy data, but if you think about it, if you order every piece of data on every customer from every channel and every agent, that can get very expensive um, because some of those are very unlikely. So we, you know, native built into our system from day one is the thinking and the the algorithms that say, hey, should I keep ordering data, for example, on this customer, or do I know enough? This house isn't going to fit our appetite, so I shouldn't pay the, you know, whatever it is to order the next piece of data. I should sort of bail out of this quote. And it's very smart, and it's getting smarter at how it does that. And so, and that ties back to this theme again. I, I was talking earlier about increasing transparency in insurance, and I, I just, you know, I don't see a world where insurance doesn't continue to commoditize and where transparent shopping doesn't become easier and easier and easier. And to win in that world, what you're going to need is highly predictive, sophisticated algorithms that, that measure risk, but also really smart algorithms that get to that decision cheaply so that you're not wasting a ton of money on quotes that you you never sell. Yeah, that optimization, I think, is really uh, key and a lot that, particularly the large guys, uh, they're just doing so much volume, right, that they don't necessarily think about the way that you would certainly in a startup. So it makes a ton of sense. And it, and it just gets to the point that there are so many areas of the value chain of what we do, where we look at that and say, oh my gosh, let's pull on that thread. Let's make that better. You know, everything from you know, how the timing on which you bill people, the, the the workflow of sending an application and verification of insurance to a consumer, the ordering of data pre-quote. I mean, 
there are so many opportunities. We, there are 40 things we can be doing. We can only do three of them at once, but um, we just see a lot of room to continue running, to continue improving and optimizing all the parts of our workflow, not just this upfront rating and underwriting piece. Do, do your customers actually save money by using you? Are you actually driving the cost of insurance down? Yes, we absolutely are. So we, like any insurance company, our rates are not going to be the right fit and our product's not going to be the right fit for everybody. So, you know, we're, we're pretty selective at this point. We, you know, agents already have some sense of which customers we're, we're sort of after what our market segment is. Nevertheless, we say no to about the 30% of the, of the quotes that are submitted to us. So the system just kicks back a no, you know, of those we are, you know, of the ones that are, are accepted or, or where we kick back a rate, we're probably competitive on, you know, 30 or 40% of those. And we have great faith in our pricing models that they're selecting the customers for whom you know we have a better opinion of risk in the market. And so we are absolutely saving people money, but that doesn't mean we can save just any customer money. It means we can save probably 40% of customers would save money with better insurance with us. And the other 60%, we are content you know, to, to have them remain with some other carrier. We'd, we'd love to win their business when it's the right fit and the right price and product fit. But for right now, it's, it's often, it's, it's sometimes not going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump into another topic. And that was the one that we hinted at earlier. You only sell through independent agents. Now, this is completely counterstream. You're the salmon swimming up the stream here to pretty much everybody else entering InsureTech that's going direct to consumer, bypassing channels, selling online direct. And of course, the, the big heavy now the, with their stock price rocketing up at Lemonade, who, who's you know selling homeowners and homeowners insurance direct to consumer. Where... Where do you, you obviously took a counter, counter position for a reason. Where do you stand on this and why? Yeah, I come at it from two angles. One is that I believe consumers always win in the end. And it's taking a long time in insurance for consumers to pull that expense ratio down and get less opacity of coverage, but they will win. It will take, may take another decade or two. And so you have to say, well, what, what is winning for a consumer in insurance? And from as much as I love insurance, from a consumer's perspective, this should be a relatively commoditized product that, that's that's pretty price competitive. And one thing that I as a consumer associate with that is being able to shop pretty easily for that. And so, you know, when my relatives ask, how should I go buy insurance? I don't tell them, oh, you should go to 10 different websites of direct carriers and put in the same information over and over and over again, and then print out the, you know, the different sins and try and do the math in your head. I'd say, no, go talk to an independent agent who will then go shop you with multiple carriers and they can shop you for the best product, the best service. They can shop you for just the best price. It's, you know, you can kind of choose your own adventure, but it is clearly the right customer experience. And you say, well, yeah, but that's, you know, you got these, humans involved and over time machines will do more and more that's absolutely true but i think you know the limiting point for me of insurance is is more like kayak than it is delta airlines website right so as insurance becomes more and more digital i think it will be my personal opinion is it will be digital comparison platforms rather than digital direct go buy one product and that's the only product you're going to buy on that website so that's that's one perspective it's the right way for the consumers to buy the other quick perspective is that as a startup with one product and one price point to offer you know paying the customer acquisition cost for insurance is really really expensive and you you bring a customer to come and finally agree, get them to agree to do a quote and then you know even the best converters of a single product direct are going to convert what 10 15 percent of customers and they're going to sell if you're a startup with one product you're going to sell one product and that is a horrible way to monetize a high customer acquisition cost. Um, a much better way to monetize that is 
or or to deal with those economics is to effectively split the customer acquisition cost. And that's what you're doing when you go through an agent. I'm splitting it with all the other carriers in that agency on kind of a, you know, whoever wins the business pays it. But the agent, you know, another way of saying that is an agent is able to convert 40 or 50% of the homeowner's quotes they do within the agency, which uh, drives down the the acquisition cost for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 that 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 is a I think I think in the in the exuberance of technology self-service and ease of use we do lose sight of the fact that insurance can be very confusing and uh, that you also have people that have you know they, they buy multiple insurance products I I still use a personal lines broker for good reason it, it, I got a you know got a bunch of thing, different things to insure and I got I don't have the time to peel through and read all read all my binders, you know. Like yeah. I'm not gonna read through all those. Things. Like let somebody else do it. I'll pay a little bit more to let them read through it and then sort through all the options on the market. Like you know, plus you know, reputation, right? You 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 want to certainly you trust your broker to be in the industry enough to understand the reputation of the companies. You know, you can have great marketing online, but maybe you don't pay through on claims well, and and you you do depend on that. So I. I I think InsureTech for me is not solely about getting direct from the insurer to customer. It is about removing friction points wherever those are. And I think if you define it that way, you're just removing friction. Look, reading all the binders and docs is friction for me to buy, to buy a policy. I mean, I am much more likely to buy a policy through an agent who's going to review it for me and watch out for my back as long as I trust them. Right, as long as I trust them. And uh, I, I did notice on your website when I went through, you do have the ability to connect people with with an agent uh, that you know, lives near them and that can process their information. You pass the information on to them. Obviously, let the agent collect it and, and finish the quoting process. So you're addressing the consumer, but you're just directing them to someone who's who's riding nearby. Yeah, that, that's right. But I would say 99.5% of our consumers do come in through the agency. I mean, you know, we're trying to build out the openly brand, but we're not going to be spending, you know, a billion five on marketing. <laughs> like, like we would need to, to drive lots of consumers to to shop openly. That's just not the direction we're headed. And, you know, you, I think you said it well, removing friction, but I think a, a good question to ask is where is the most friction today? A consumer who maybe shops for home insurance once every five years um, or an agent who quotes home insurance, you know, 10 times a day. And the way we see it is by, taking the, the time to quote and sell home insurance from whatever, 20 minutes a day, what, you know, whatever, however you want to count it with the downtime, et cetera, down to like minutes or even seconds, if they want it to be, we are saving agents time every day, all the time, day in, day out. Whereas for a consumer, that would be way more dispersed and they, you know, they, it just wouldn't uh, be as concentrated a benefit to their, to their life or their livelihood as it is for the agents. Awesome. And Rob. Yeah. I just would wrap up with echoing, you know, you need to look no further than the deluge of ads that we see on TV from Geico, from Progressive, from State Farm, my former employer USA and Ty's former employer Liberty Mutual. Although I do like the little guy that's the phone that jumps into the bag of rice personally that's a little bit better than the the Doug and Emu ads in my personal opinion but you know that costs a lot of money right and as an existing policyholder that you know as an expense ratio we were talking about earlier and gets me nothing and so that actually kind of makes me frustrated as a policyholder with one of those firms and even if you think about well I'm going to do digital marketing online and I'm going to do Google AdWords and you know that's a cheaper way to go it really isn't if you think about some of the commonly used search terms that people are are searching for insurance and so yeah we've seen this you know pie insurance you know a lot of hippo success has been tied to this you know agency tie-in that they have so insure techs have have learned i think that the 
the customer acquisition cost is not always cheaper going direct. I think that's a, a misperception out there. So I, I think your strategy makes a lot of sense, Ty. And, and part of it is, what is your value? What is what are you really good at as a startup? Right? Are you really good at marketing? Is that what you want to be? You want to be a? You are a marketing company. If you're spending to acquire direct consumers, that that's almost all that matters. If if you can market well for insurance, you should just do that, and then you know start it sell those leads or that agency to someone we that's not what we're good at or what you know we're 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 our spike our our key capabilities are in building this really fast and intuitive technology these algorithms these processes better workflows that just make things easier both the human part and the machine part that's downstream from the marketing and so when we're really good at that we say let's let's take this product and give it to other people who are good at marketing agents are good at marketing let's let them market our amazing product and they get it by the way right i mean they because they, because they use it so many times every day they they can easily be the evangelist to the consumer because they know what it means to have guaranteed replacement cost even if a consumer might not the agent will say believe me you should buy this so anyway it's 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 worked out really well for us so far and i I love that it's working both in the short term for us, but I also truly believe that it's the long term for insurance. I think we're going to continue to go toward choice choice platforms and insurance. So those two both work for us. Awesome. Well, great, great discussion today. And if you want more information, go to openly.com. You can go check it out, read about the company and, and, and look at what they're, what they're up to there. I'm excited for you. I hope it goes well. And certainly from a technology development perspective, if you have any tech updates, I always want to hear them. I'm a commercial drone pilot as well. And so I love hearing about uh, drone usage for underwriting and claims. I think it's uh, incredibly useful. I don't think we need to send people up on roofs anymore to inspect roofs. That's just me. But all kinds of good things there. Let's jump into the news. Rob, I know you, you've got three news stories that are pretty relevant today. Yeah, so a couple of these are related. The first is Corvus Insurance came out and they've raised $100 million. And they've really specialized in the cyberspace, but they're looking to, to broaden their reach into other lines of business. So congrats to the, the folks at Corvus. I, I know a few of them. And so... Real exciting to see this kind of validation from the market. And you definitely catches your eye when you're talking about, you know, nine nine figures. And then Cowbell Cyber also reported that they are raising $20 million in the Series A to scale their AI-powered cyber insurance offering. So again, both companies really kind of that focus on cyber use of AI and, and both securing funding to expand and, and go beyond. So I, I think you know it's a big week for cyber startups. And then finally, I thought this was real interesting. So James Ty, interested to get your thoughts. This was an exclusive in Inc. magazine, or I guess website, whatever they are now, how Google's new career certificates could disrupt the college degree. And so Google is planning to offer online education, kind of these massively online open courses like Coursera and others at some education institutions, such as MIT and others are already offering these certificate type programs. But Google is saying that you could potentially get a certificate for as cheap as you know $240. And it may be recognized in lieu of a four-year college degree for certain jobs as that uh, degree is, is very much a barrier for many people in the marketplace. And I think Google is kind of looking to disrupt academia with this new model. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have said that it's ripe for disruption, but we haven't really seen it yet at scale. So curious to see if you guys think Google will be successful. You know why you haven't seen accreditation bodies? There is a snowball's chance that you're going to see a free or really inexpensive program get accredited by the major accrediting bodies that, uh, and, and that, and that's that's because I mean you you have to you're looking at and full disclosure I'm a regent at a public university so I I I, I should I should mention that and 
first off, as someone who's taught in the university classroom for years and as an administrator at a public university, I can say there is very few, there are very few replacements for actual face-to-face classroom time. That's why COVID's been so so damaging is because you eliminate the the relationship building that occurs in college, uh, a lot of the maturing that occurs when you're going and living on your own and, and, and plugging into student life. It's like the other education we call it at Texas A&M where you're plugging into student activities. The Corps Cadets was my, the other half of my degree uh, at A&M, which is a military college inside A&M. That was the other half of my degree. And, and that wouldn't have happened online. You can't do a core online. And so first off, I love that we're going to make education widely available because every study I've ever seen says that education drives earning potential up. Any education, literacy drives, and that drives global GDP up. That drives the, you know, of course, let's talk about economics again. It improves economies, it improves companies, it improves quality of life for everybody, right? That life and the planet are not a zero-sum game. Wealth is created from nothing. And so education is a major upgrade for human beings. And so I am for anything, anything that will upgrade human beings and their education. And this is great news. And I know I've taken advantage of online courses. Universities, many professors at universities have been posting their content during COVID on YouTube and just telling their students to go watch YouTube and fill out an online quiz. And I got to tell you, they are precipitating some of their own challenges by doing this, by, by not engaging in online interactive classrooms and just say, go watch a video and take a test. Well, shoot, what's the difference between that and just going to YouTube to learn, right? I mean, my daughter is now almost 11. She turns 11 pretty, pretty soon here. She learns everything on YouTube. And I mean, the, the skills she comes down with on a daily basis, craft, she's really into crafting and she's really into, she learned how to, how to pack bags from YouTube. She learned how to plan her travel from YouTube. She learned how to design, do all of her makeup. She's doing makeup in kindergarten, learned it on YouTube. I mean, she's just a YouTube junkie. And so there are cultural things that are happening right now that, that, that are, are going to be really seismic. But, but the universities have accrediting bodies that are, are going to ensure that the only people who are accredited follow really stringent standards. And, and so I think that's going to be the, when you talk about disruption, that's going to be the hurdle they're going to have to get over is actually getting programs like this accredited with the major, major accrediting, like you know, accrediting bodies. Right. That's, that's the, that's the big, big, big hurdle. Is that, if that makes sense? Yeah. Ty, curious. What do you think? Well, I don't remember exactly how much Duke charged me, but I think it was more than, what'd you say? $240 a minute at Duke. <laughs> I can't help but think that I'm owed some sort of, no, I, you know, I, I think there's maybe an interesting parallel um, in the, the corporate world where, you know, we we are a remote first company. We've almost had to be. We, we would likely have gone that path anyway. But we've almost had to be due to COVID. Um, we we during COVID we've grown from 15 people to 65 people. We'll probably be 125 people by the time that you know the world is 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 more open. And I, in the short term, it has worked very very well for us. You know, I, I think we we're extremely efficient, and there's, there's huge benefits to it. I do wonder about the the longer term, maybe the analog being the other things that college gives you beyond, you know, just the, the book learning, you know? So I, I do wonder what that's going to do longer term to our culture. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're having to figure out what's the middle ground there. Do you, is it that we, you know, every X weeks, we all meet up in some city in some way and, or is that trying to pave the cow path? So ongoing research, um, 
project or, or science project, I feel like at, at us, but at our company, but I'm sure a lot of other companies too. But it's interesting. I know I, I of course agree and support more widely available higher education. I've certainly benefited from it and, and been very fortunate in that way and, and support whatever gets that out to more people. Yeah, fantastic. And and yeah, I, I've thought the same thing, Ty and, and James, I'm sure you've wrestled with this. Of, you know, it's great that people can continue operations, particularly those that were based in an office and then had to kind of make that move to to fully remote. But, you know, the we know the the water cooler time in many cases is overrated, right? There's just kind of a time suck and you were talking about, right, what are Harry and Megan talking about to, to Oprah or whatnot. But you know, there are some innovation, there's some brainstorming, there's some collaboration that doesn't necessarily happen, you know, each and every day when you're just you know, meeting after meeting after meeting, just getting down to business. Where are we on this project? What's the status? What needs to be next, et cetera. And so I, I do think sometimes there is something lacking and to your point, like, you know, how do you facilitate both? I think is definitely a challenge that a lot of folks have been wrestling with from startups all the way to Fortune 500. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, COVID, COVID's like, it's like water, right? It, it permanently changed things. And we'll see how permanent a lot of the changes are in, in the very near future. What it did do is it forced everybody to accept that remote works for a whole bunch of our lives. <laughs> and yeah, I tell you what, rents are severely depressed in New York City right now because of it. I was reading an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal that landlords are choosing not to rent rather than rent at the lower rates in hope that it will, it will recover soon. And I'm like, it ain't going to recover soon. People have moved. They literally moved, <laughs> you know. You got people like Ty who went south to Charleston, and they're staying there. You know, you ain't gonna leave paradise. All our neighbors are from uh, New York or Boston or, <laughs> or Chicago. Yeah. To be honest, yeah, yeah they're <laughs> like, no, we're out. You know, they want they want space and neighborhoods, and you know, it's it's yeah, it's interesting. Education is at a is at a, an interesting inflection point. It's something that we certainly talk a lot about at Texas Southern, and you know, student success, of course, is number one. And I tell you what, we get a lot more. We have a lot more student success. I'll tell you this: when they live on campus, they attend classes, we see them face to face, and we can provide face to face mentorship. A lot more of them graduate, they have a better student experience, and they're more successful. And we look at a lot of a lot of data, a lot of numbers, and so that's certainly what what you got to we got to factor in. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And as always, Rob, just thanks for thanks for being my my compadre on this whole deal. Ty, appreciate you being on. Thank you for for your your work in the insurance business. And thanks for joining us on the InsureTech Geek podcast. No, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Awesome. And Rob, I guess I'll see you next week, huh? Yeah, looking forward to it. Spring break here in Texas. So if you're, well, at least it is in College Station. Is it spring break in San Antonio? It is this week. So yeah, you guys are a week after us. And it's actually like spring, unlike three yeah, weeks ago. Right? Yeah, it's in the 70s, man. It's fantastic. So I'll be in Ty's neck of the wood next week, uh, hanging out over in Charleston. So going to enjoy that. But again, to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. Super appreciate you being on board. And again, this has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, jbknowledge.com. It's all about tech that's transforming and disrupting the business world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith, endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonara, our creative producer, and thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time. <laughs>